right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuckeristas? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin, and this is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. I know many of you have, have been here a while, and uh, I definitely appreciate it. So listen, I talked to uh, a guy named Andrew Leland today. Now, Andrew Leland, uh, he was a writer, an editor, a lecturer, and... Uh, I met him before many years ago. Um, I did a panel. It was a Litquake panel with him back in 2010 for The Believer, uh, where he's been a writer since 2003. And so what happened is I was at Superiority Burger in New York the last time I was there having a nice time. And he's walking or he's being walked by a guy. And I just hear someone behind me go, hey, there's Mark Marin." And I turn around and there's a guy standing there who I don't know. And there's another guy standing there I don't know, but he's got a, a blind stick. I don't know what you call those. Um, and he's looking right at me and he goes, Mark Marin, do you remember me? Uh, we uh, did a panel together in San Francisco and I kind of remembered him, but he wasn't blind then. And, you know, he reintroduced himself uh, as, you know, Andrew Leland and uh, I was trying to put things together, but I still couldn't figure it out. Why, how would I not remember a blind guy? And uh, it turns out he wasn't blind yet. He had this degenerative disease that progressively made him blind. And now he's blind. And he's written a book about it. And it's called uh, The Country of the Blind, a memoir at the end of sight. He gave me a copy of it. And I thought... Well, I got to take a look at this. And I, I invited him on the spot. I said, are you coming to Los Angeles? Maybe you could uh, come on the show. And he was uh, planning a trip out here and he came on the show. And this was the conversation of us catching up and talking about the, the sort of journey through and to blindness. You know, gratitude is not something that that necessarily comes easy for me because it's not that I'm ungrateful. I just don't pay attention to uh, to gratitude as much as I should to for my health and for you know the people in my life and uh, for you know not uh, dying one way or the other uh, by accident. And it it you'll know, be it's just because I I think I'm in such a a place of hyper kind of panic and my brain's always on fire. So, and I've talked about this before is I don't, I don't really know exactly what happiness looks like. And I'm not sure. I think gratitude is more active than happiness, quote unquote, but I'm usually looking for a certain amount of relief, but that's uh, that's sort of a cheat, isn't it? So, you know, it was, it was touching to talk to this guy because you know, this is a guy that's known he was going blind for a long time and it happened gradually, but you know, he is, approaching his life and making the adaptations necessary and making decisions around it and understanding a, a world and a life that he'd, he'd never anticipated. Uh, well, he did actually, but I'm not sure he anticipated it, it as actively and now is sort of adjusting and, and embracing it. And that to me is, is a profound amount of uh, strength. You know, you don't know how you're going to be challenged in this life, but we all will be. Uh, whether it's with your own problems or with the problems of people you love. And you don't know what that's going to do to you. You know, obviously, like during COVID, we were all challenged. And now, you know, with the world as it is, we're all challenged. And what do what do we do? What do we do? Do we, do we think what we're doing is enough? I don't fucking know, man. 
All I know is I'm trying to do some new jokes and I'd like to think I'm on the pulse of something other than just myself, but I don't, I don't know that that's true. Uh, listen, I'm at Largo in Los Angeles on Wednesday, September 6th. I'll be doing five shows at Helium in St. Louis, September 14th through 16th. Then I'll be in uh, Las Vegas at the Wise Guys in the Arts District on uh, September 22nd and 23rd for four shows. And in October, I'm at Helium in Portland. Uh, that's Portland, Oregon on October 20th through 22nd for five shows. Some of them are already sold out. There are forthcoming dates uh, in Denver. And uh, in Albuquerque, I'm doing a night in Albuquerque. Those tickets aren't on sale yet. I'll be at the chemo in November. So heads up, I'll let you know when those, when those go on sale. So look, I've been reading the new book that is forthcoming by Naomi Klein, who is a brilliant, progressive scholar. And um, I've read parts of The Shock Doctrine, I've read parts of uh, No Logo, but I've always been overwhelmingly impressed with her. So she's got this new book, and I want to know it because I'm going to talk to her. I want to know it. And I think it's her most personal book. It's really leveling. Between the last couple books I've read, which are both nonfiction, Jeff Charlotte, who you'll hear on this show, I believe that book's called Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. And, uh, and Naomi's book, Doppelganger, A Trip into the Mirror World, it, you know, it is thorough, it is personal, and it really talks about, you know, both of them talk about what is happening. Uh, Jeff Charlotte's book, Undertow, specifically about fascism and propaganda and, uh, and the very real threat of it. Um, and Naomi Klein also speaks of that, but, but she ties together a lot of things that I've been thinking and couldn't quite connect like the wellnesses, the wellness industry and how that has sort of been turned out by fascistic thought. She goes into the history of, you know, genocides. She talks about specifically the whole book is a, and I'll talk about it more in the future, but the portal to the book is, is her obsession with being mistaken uh, for Naomi Wolf online mostly, and then sort of chasing that into what she calls the mirror world, which is the bubble reality of uh, fascist uh, propaganda, the fascist movement, conspiracy theories, and and sort of um, creates a, a metaphor for that world. And then through that, we, we get the history of, of capitalism, and where we're at with that and all this sort of uh, energy that is misdirected into what is a festering fascist movement and into a, a, a very real and obvious and happening climate crisis. It's not without humor and without personality and, and without, you know, her emotional and personal investment in the story. But it just sort of really kind of rang some bells for me. What am I talking about on stage? What am I really doing? You know, what am I representing up there by deciding to talk about, you know, trauma and, and, and as opposed to really, and you know, look, I address fascism. I address anti-Semitism. I address climate. I have for the last two specials. I seem to always have it there, but somehow, you know, she gave me a window into what is the fundamental problem at the core of erasing 
a country's history on purpose and what that means. Like when you talk about book banning and about uh, being against critical race theory or, or this idea of, of uh, bodily purity and anti-vaxxing. And, and she sort of contextualizes it historically and, and really connects it all to the effects and disastrous, uh, the disastrous catastrophe of late stage capitalism, you know, and that is sort of the last part of the book. And I don't know if I'm educated properly or really keep that in mind, because in order to keep that in mind, just how much death and pain and the sweat of the enslaved that you eat and wear on your body and use every day is it's dark and overwhelming, but it is true, man. So, how do you go through life avoiding that, you know, with the sort of ideas like, well, I do the best that I can. And, you know, I'm, I'm aware, you know, what, what good is awareness? So like, you know, what good is awareness? So, you know, I'm carrying a lot of that with me and a lot of my own personal struggles in terms of, of psychologically what I'm, I'm sort of going through now and, and also trying to, you know, create, but in, in reading it and in reading about, sort of the repercussions of the settling of Europe and North America and manifest destiny and, and genocide and, you know, how, you know, Christian culture primarily and, and capitalism is sought to really sort of bury the reality of that and, and make it and diminish it. And she really talks about that. You can't do that for very long because it will start coming out. It will all start coming out. She talks about the, I think they're called the shadowlands of, of sort of the dark side of the results of historical plunder. And I realize that, you know, I'm, I'm catching up with reservation dogs and I'm realizing like this is the voice of the shadowland. This is the beautiful, emotionally deep, truly authentic voice of a people that was nearly eradicated. And I'm really kind of looking at that with new eyes and watching these shows. And I texted Sterling and I really think that reservation dogs is probably the most important uh, TV show and work of film art in, in the last few decades in my memory that in, and underground railroad also a voice of art from the Shadowlands. You know, you you hang your hope on these things. I mean, I I am moved by it because I'm I'm sort of attaching it to all this this new knowledge that I have. And it's easy to watch it as a surface thing and as a cute show and an emotional show, but the nature, the at the core of of Reservation Dogs is the survival of a people that was intentionally attempted there was an intentional there was an intent on behalf of colonizers to eradicate them from the world. And that darkness is at the core of the hope and the emotions and the stories of that small but beautiful television show. And now it's, it's even ringing deeper with me now. And the fact that in recent weeks, you know, all I've had to hang my hope, not, and there's nothing to hang my hope on in the face of climate crisis, 
But in the face of fascism, it's interesting to me that over the last month, you know, outside of, you know, you know, Trump's indictments or whatever, I don't know how many, you know, barrels that shark can swim with, but, you, you know, he's always surprising and, and it, it doesn't seem like justice is ever really forthcoming. And in terms of the general sort of shameless fascism and hijacking of symbols and language of the left and, and just uh, anti-Semitism and, and, you know, shop owners being killed for displaying rainbow flags in America, you know, that's, that's an act of domestic terrorism. But it is a point of view that is being championed by almost an entire political party shamelessly. And that's what happens. That's how it all starts. But it's fascinating to me that in light of all this, that the only two things that have given me any sort of uplift or, or sense of hope and desire to, to sort of stay on it are the Barbie movie and Reservation Dogs. It's, it's wild. There's a joy to the spirit of them, but there's also a profound courage to them and, and something prof deeply resonant and, and educational if you really sort of chase down where these things come from. But, uh, but thank you, Greta. Thank you, Sterling. Uh, it's, it's exciting. Okay, so now let's talk to uh, Andrew Leland about you know, moving through Becoming Blind. The Country of the Blind, a memoir at the end of sight, is available now wherever you get books. And this is uh, a conversation I had with, uh, with Andrew Leland. I'm glad I ran into him. How long have you been in town? Uh, since Friday. And you went, you saw David Chang. How'd that happen? So I used to work at McSweeney's. Right. And when I was there, Lucky Peach started. Oh, yeah, yeah. And McSweeney's published that magazine with David Chang. What was there, like eight issues or something? Maybe some, I think there was a little more than that. Really? But yeah, they left McSweeney's after a while and went off on their own. I kind of liked it. I, it was a pretty magazine. You wrote for it. I, I was did. reminded of that. You did a thing about uh, cast, cast iron, iron pans. Cast iron pans. Right. Which I never followed your advice, but I always feel guilty now when I've got my weird rusty cast iron pan that well, I should do the Marin thing, but uh, I don't. You know what? It's like one of those things, uh, not unlike many things, that I did not uh, commit to. It's not a lifelong passion. Oh, it makes me feel better. No, man. It's like I get, I get caught up in shit, and then I'm all in for a few. And then I season the pans, or I or I do the jeans a certain way, or I do, or I buy you know all the albums of one artist, and then a month or two later, I'm like, yeah, it's behind me. Um, you're making me happy. Yeah, yeah that's I'm, I'm right there with oh, you. I'm a I'm I'm a classic compulsive, uh, slightly manic person mm -hmm. that uh, finds uh, over time that all these little exciting things that I get uh, totally obsessed with do not change my uh, emotional or psychological bottom line. But you expect every time you expect them to. This is the one. This is the thing. I don't know if I put that much weight in it, but I like being that engaged. Mm -hmm. But And I do think that, you know, I will stick with it. Mm -hmm. it well, I know that stuff about cast iron, and if I need to, to re-season one, I will. But it, it, there is something about, uh, I don't know, man. It, it, every time I do anything like that, it always seems like right at the same time everyone else is doing it. Yeah. It's kind of like seasons of television or podcasting. You know, you're like, yeah. it doesn't need to be a, like Cheers. It doesn't need to be on for 20. You don't need to be Mr. Cast Iron for 30 years. No. Just, I don't need to be the go-to guy. Let it be. Let it have a good run and then let it go. So 
when I ran into you, I was at the Superiority Burger, and you came up to me, uh, <laughs> or uh, I think the guy that was kinda, Jordan, Jordan Bass, yeah. He was uh, walking with you, and he's like, Mark Marin, and you're like, hey. And then, like, I didn't put it together and for, for a second that you had the stick. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I was talking to you, and you're looking right at me, and I'm like, what's going on? Yeah, yeah. Is this for real? You thought I was a faker. It was like a, it was like a jackass kind no, of— No, I didn't—it's like, weird. I didn't initially think you was a faker, but I, I knew that you were a guy that could see, because yeah. you, you hosted a panel that I was on, and I tried to put that together when that happened yeah. and what I thought of you then. Oh, wow. Yeah, there was a lot going on in that moment. I thought you were being extremely polite and that you didn't totally believe that I had moderated the panel and you were just like, okay, some like weird dudes are accosting me and interrupting my superiority burger. And I'm no. going to be nice so that they leave soon. And then you, you, you did a book event there. Is that uh, what it was? In, uh, in the back? Security, it, was a, it was like a party. My friend Jordan, um, who also was part of the Dave Chang universe until recently, uh, booked the back room there and yeah we yeah, had like nice. a dozen people celebrating yeah. the publication of that's books. nice and then you're like oh do you have a book and you didn't and i said you should do the podcast and you're like i'm gonna be in la this week i'm like let's do it and then you left it was and unbelievable then you, and then you came back in <laughs> and said I, I stole my wife's book it's the only copy she has or something yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean and my editor was out there and she just couldn't believe it because we were basically like we just booked Marin randomly and, and all props to jordan because like obviously i wouldn't have seen you but yeah. also like just he saw you and had and just the thought pierced like a spear through time. Like he remembered the the San Francisco yeah. panel in 2010. He thought about you and the podcast and yeah. me and the book. And it just like and I can't. And and I'm amazed that you you responded so generously. So I can't believe I'm sitting here. Right Wait, now. but I was trying to remember if you moderated a book event I did at that place because I've done two events at the Jewish Community Center in San Francisco. And my feeling about Jews in San Francisco is they're they're hiding. <laughs> and uh, that's always been my feeling is that you go to San Francisco because there were seriously. And then I figured I, I learned it. I guess we're going to ramble on about Jews for a minute. Sure. Because I think Levi Strauss was a Jew. And I think most of the Jewish aristocracy in the Bay Area were German Jews, which uh -huh. are the worst. Oh. See, I come from peasant Jews. You know, the, from where? What Poland, part of Ukraine, uh -huh. uh, you know, and maybe some German, but not much. Mostly in Russia. That's Russia. My, stock, my stock as well. Yeah. But the German Jews, because my my mother's boyfriend is a German Jew, they 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 were the ones that we can work with Hitler. Uh -huh. yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> but they have a different sense of of. I think passing, uh, like because I don't get the feeling that the Jewish community in San Francisco is that Jewy. Interesting, but interesting. The, you know, I don't know if you hear there. But I thought I didn't know if you you had moderated me one on one. No, but then it was a panel. Yeah, it, and I must that must have been the the weekend I was there to do. Uh, I did I probably did Robin Williams oh. that weekend wow. that interview. Wow, because it was a panel with uh, who was it? it was Merman? Yep, uh, Larry Doyle. Yeah, and Daniel Handler. Yeah. And yeah, that's where I met Daniel Handler, and he eventually ended up doing uh, uh, a WTF. Oh, nice. And Larry Doyle, I worked with at, like, I can't even remember, was it Comedy Central? Wow. Cranky little fucker, that guy. Yeah, I made an ass of myself on that panel. I remember just being, that was like the first thing like that I'd ever done, and I was like, oh, you live in Baltimore? Like, you must be pretty psyched about The Wire, because I just like, watched The Wire, and yeah, he was sure. like, did you watch the show? Like, what are you talking about? Because I, I just had this like naive, like, television city, cool. Yeah, yeah, and it was yeah. like, it's about how... How fucking horrible it is here. Yeah, but how can you not be psyched about The Wire? See, he yeah. was just being a dick. Okay. I mean, there's nothing not to be psyched about The Wire, but <laughs> right. he chose in that moment yes. to make you feel like an idiot. Yes, and I felt that way. Oh, good. Well, I felt like you know, I might tr I'm trying to recall. Are you, you were a little snarky, weren't you? 
I don't think so. I think I was holding on by the seat of my pants. Sometimes that comes off as snarky when you're completely terrified and a little bit defensive. I guess so. <laughs> I remember the thing I remember about meeting you was you said uh, you're Neil Simon's grandson, and there was no reason for you to know that because yeah. was. Uh, so I think my boss Dave Eggers must have just told you. I mm. think somehow um, to be yeah. like, oh yeah, don't worry about the guy moderating the panel. He's Neil Simon's grandson. You know, he's not one of the German Jews. He's like you know, good Ukrainian <laughs> Latvian Jew. Uh, and then you also asked me where I went to college, which which I was surprised by, just because I feel like it's one of those questions that, yeah. that, I don't know, I just like wasn't expecting you to care or, right. yeah, but I was. I was trying I was, to size you up. Yeah, you were sizing you, you, me up. You, you know, you got you got big props for the Neil Simon connection. Then sure. The, but what was the college? Oberlin. Oh, yeah, that's all right. My, my late girlfriend went there for a year. The, um, but Neil Simon, so, so that means like Danny Simon was your great uncle. Yeah, yeah. Now I, 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 <laughs> how do you know about Danny Simon? Who doesn't know about Danny Simon? Uh, lots of people. Um, Dan, there's a weird clip going around that I just saw the other day. Oh. Who was it of? Oh, I was watching a, a doc of. Oh, it was Don Rickles. It was so weird, man, because it's all this weird footage of Don Rickles, and he was at some event, mm. and there was a drunky lady mm. who kept coming up to him. He was like being interviewed on a TV show, mm -hmm. and there was, a, and, and they were just asking him questions. He was there with some other celebrity, and there was some drunk woman that kept stepping in, going, "Don, Don, Danny Seinman told me to say hi," <laughs> and he didn't register that. He just registered that she was drunk, and I'm like, "I know who Danny Simon is. I took." I took Danny Simon's comedy writing you seminar. You did not. I did. Wow. And I could not understand it. I completely did not get it. I just wanted him to like me. Uh -huh. I remember, like, all I remember is he had bought an Irish soda bread in Boston for some reason, and it wasn't what he expected, and he gave it to me. <laughs> but it was like one of these seminars, it's like two days, eight hours a day, wow. where he's got a system yeah. for writing sitcoms. Right. And it's complicated, and there's, like, diagrams, <laughs> and he was kind of a cranky old Jew that mm -hmm. was running a racket. Wow. I mean, I went, my, I really... There was one time that he and I spent the day together. We went to some museum, and it was kind of like my like eight year old version of the Danny Simon comedy seminar, where <laughs> yeah. he was just like, "Let me tell you about the play I wrote." And yeah, uh, but whereas my grandfather, by contrast, like there was never any kind of instruction like that. It was always just like, I I can't even out. imagine the chip on Danny's shoulder. Yeah, for the entire life because that's that's his. You know, fine, the show is shows. But, you know, I was a kid and, like, I knew of it. But it doesn't really carry much. Yeah, It's not like a huge amount of gravitas. Right. Not as much as being Neil Simon's brother. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. He, you could kind of feel the weight of that. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. I mean, I yeah. Did you have a relationship with your grandfather? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so you were, like, there uh, when Matthew Broderick was doing... Uh, what, what is it, Brighton Beach Memoir? Uh -huh, uh -huh. And the other one, what was the other one? Was it, uh, uh, Black Sea Blues. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, he and I went to London, just just the two of us. You and Neil? Yeah. Um, I called him Papa. Yeah, sure, uh, sure. Whose father is he? He's my mom's dad. Okay. Um, yeah, I was probably like 12 or something yeah. like that. Yeah. It was an amazing week. We went to see a bunch of plays, including like, you know, I think he didn't do a lot of thinking about where, I mean, Whatever we went to like a British sex farce that was like extremely explicit and very yeah. uncomfortable to watch together. Like, got, like people just like bent over couches and <laughs> yeah. doing it with each other a lot. Yeah. Uh, but then we also saw like a David Mamet play and a Tom Stoppard play, and it was an incredible trip. So, was that? Do you have brothers and sisters? I have a half sister, younger sister. Oh, okay. And was that what kind of got you into writing? Uh, I mean, my mom is a screenwriter, also. What'd she write? Uh, her. 
her hits are uh, Moonlight and Valentino, which mm. was John Bon Jovi's screen debut. Mm. Also, Whoopi Goldberg's in that, Elizabeth Perkins, Gwyneth Paltrow, uh-huh. Kathleen Turner. <laughs> right. About the time when my stepdad died um, when I was uh, like in second grade or something what like that. What about your real dad? Real dad? What about him? Where's Great. he? He's in uh, Northern California. I'm going to see him tonight. Oh, he got, oh, so you get along with that guy. Yeah, he's a good guy. So what, did he split like immediately after you were born? They got divorced when I was two. Oh, and then the new guy passed away? Yeah, got hit by a car. Oh, my God. Jogging in the icy Nyack, New York streets. That's terrible. I agree. But you barely knew the guy. Uh, my stepdad? Yeah. He was my stepdad for a couple of years. A couple of years? But you were two? Or no, like no, no. A- I think it, I was two when my parents got divorced. Okay. When Jeff died, I was in like... Uh, second grade, something like that. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. Sorry, buddy. Hey, uh, it's been, you... I've had some years in between. A lot of things have happened. A lot of things have happened. But so what is the, the sort of trajectory? Because I remember you wrote for, what, McSweeney's The Believer and stuff? Okay, so, yeah, I, I, I was at Oberlin College. Did you do, a, like, were you, like, a, uh, an editor of the uh, the satire magazine or anything? Indeed I was. Uh, <laughs> it was called Oberlin on Oberlin. Yeah, I inherited yeah, yeah. it from some other guy. It was a website. Yeah. And I loved doing that. And then uh, so you came up with websites already. How old are you? I'm 42. Oh, so you're young. Good Am for I? You. Okay. Yeah. Cheers. Well, I mean, I'm 59. That doesn't seem that distant to me. No, I know, but it's weird when, like, at some point, you you think everyone's the same age as you, and then all of a sudden you you hit 59, and you're like, what the fuck are the? How old were these people when I knew them? <laughs> you know what I mean? Because yeah. I have no sense of time because yeah. I don't have children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't you don't have a sense of grown up time unless you have kids, and yeah. you can watch them turn into whatever they turn into. I have a 10-year-old. And also, I've taught a little bit Yeah, uh, my own version of the Danny Simon comedy workshop. And yeah. so, I, that, I feel like, yeah, hanging out with, with younger people will do that to you. So, so you did the the uh, satire music, or satire mag, and then what? You graduate? No. So, then I do an internship at McSweeney's right after Eggers moves it to San Francisco. Oh. And behind the scenes, they're starting the Believer magazine. So, you were living in San Francisco? I, that's when you For went. the summer, like oh, doing, doing an internship. Yeah. And then I went back to college, and they were kind of like, look... We're starting this magazine. We need a managing editor. Yeah. We know you have a year left in college. Yeah. But like, would you like the job? Yeah. So I dropped out of college. Then I moved to San Francisco. Dave was like, you should read a manual of like the layouts, the Quark Express layout software on the plane. So that yeah. like, when you get here, you know how to lay out wow. the magazine. And th- I did that job for like eight years. And it was to, man, uh, editing the managing editor of The Believer. Yeah. That was kind of a great uh, thing, The Believer. Was it quarterly or was it by It was month? monthly. It started for monthly. Now it's fewer. But uh, yeah, it was. I think we- I wrote a couple of things for that. I did a mailbag. I think you were gone by then, though. That's no, I wasn't. Oh. Uh, that's why. That's why I was moderating the panel because it was about a book that we published that was like because Amy Sedaris had an advice yeah. column, right? And then there were a lot of guest columnists and I think you were a guest columnist and yep. I think everybody on that panel was had done it and there was oh. a book that we published that was collected. Oh, stuff. that's why I was there. I had and to look that up too. I had, didn't had, remember. Had nothing to do with me. It was a booking. It was a book. Yeah. It was, but, it, but it was like you book, you chose us. Right. Yeah, you right. reached out to, because my lip site used to write for them a lot. Yeah, yeah. I forgot that you guys are buddies. Oh yeah, yeah. He's my best friend. Wow. That guy. I got two best friends. Who was the other one? Jerry Stahl. Okay. Yeah, I got the whole spectrum covered. <laughs> <laughs> somehow emotionally uh but i just saw lips like that I, when i was in town i don't remember who i was sitting with that and i think i was there myself that i think night. you were yeah but uh yeah i spent a lot of time with sam when i was just back so that's what you did you did the and that so you watched that whole eggers empire build and happen pretty much i mean it was already an empire when i got there but it definitely grew and it was an incredible time I mean, it was like my grad school and, yeah. my, and the end of my college and shit. then and then what happened after that did you write other places 
I, I didn't do a lot of writing during that time. Oh. Um, I had like a weird blog that I would just like jazz around on and nobody, yeah. nobody read it. And yeah. then I, um, I met my wife, who yeah. was a grad student at Berkeley. And then, you know, the way that academia works is she got a job at, in Missouri. And a, about a year before that, I could just see the writing on the wall that she was not going to like get a job at Berkeley and we were going to stay there. And so yeah. I kind of preemptively quit because it was golden handcuffs kind of situation. Yeah. I wasn't really growing anymore. Right. I did some weird editorial projects around the Bay Area. And then we moved to Columbia, Missouri, where we lived for five years, had a kid. I was still working for The Believer remotely. So wait, what do you mean like editorial projects? How does that work as a freelance editor? What do you do? Like the Oakland Museum of California got a giant grant to build a freaky website, and I yeah. was the editor of the freaky website. So that's a like that's a like a, a, a one shot payday. Uh, no, it was like a it was like a you know I was on staff for six months or something because it was like ongoing. It was kind of like being a curator at the museum, but curating words on their website. And, and did like you that. like? Did you have an art background? Uh, like, could you write it. about art? Uh, I was not a writer. I mean, I, I as, as an editor of the Believer, that's an arts background, right? Like, we're yeah. inter- interviewing. So you weren't. You didn't consider yourself a writer. No, I didn't. I had mm. a little bit of anxiety about that. Even I was kind of huh. like, I'm, I'm an editor. I'm in this family of writers. I have this freaky blog that my smart writerly friends say is good. But, right. You know, and I, I wrote like book reviews for the San Francisco Chronicle here and there. Right. But nothing that it was like real. So that's interesting that I, I don't know, know that I ever really thought about that, that being an editor is a job unto itself that it doesn't, doesn't necessarily imply writing. It implies organization and curation. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, you definitely have to be as intimate with, with a piece of writing as a writer is, but yeah. you're on the other side. You know, think about like whatever directing versus acting would be a metaphor. Sure. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, I mean, I've had editors. You've got to, you got to kind of, you know, make things work. Right. Yeah. And you get, you make some enemies of writers. Right. So what did you do? Like I saw that you did something for the Whitney. I'm a big fan of the Whitney Museum. That was back in my day of like, you know, doing tiny weird art projects. A friend of mine who's in LA now, John Hershend, yeah, had this magazine called The Thing. Yeah. That was kind of like McSweeney's. Like they were just like, doing, yeah. you know, like it would, one, epi- one, one issue was like a couple of cups that the artist Chris Johansson designed. Sure. Uh, and, uh, what even was that? That's in my bio. I feel like I took that out of my bio. He and I like collaborated on some weird piece of writing. He's great, but I, if you put a gun to my head, I don't know if I would tell you what that, that piece of writing what it was. Really I like. was just really proud because you know, talk about not being a writer. I was like, I'm in the catalog for the Whitney Biennial. Yeah, and but you know, it was probably like 11 words that were all passed through uh, John Hershen. So, so that was take it. that out of my bio, please. I don't, I, I don't know where I, I don't know where we found somebody it. Somebody googled me. Yeah, yeah, somebody did some work. Yeah, I don't have much. Okay. Well, I there's only, not much. I mean, I'm, I'll give you anything you want, but I. Yeah. So when do you? Uh, and I, I rarely bring it up like that, but I didn't think you were going to mention it. And I just so happened to have just been at the Whitney. Oh. I went to New York, and I'm a proud member of the Whitney Museum. I don't know why. I feel like uh, if if I'm going to give to the arts, I'll just do the membership thing. So yeah. that means they update me on things, and when I go, I can I can go right to the front of the line it's and an, see the special exhibition. It's an awesome place. Great place. Yeah. The new Whitney is spectacular. Yeah. I mean, it's like one of the best places to look at art that I've ever been to. That and the Tate in London, the new uh, Tate. Yeah. In that big industrial space. Incredible. Yeah. Right? You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. I've been there. It's the best. Yeah. Yeah. That combine building or whatever the fuck it is. Yeah. That giant hall. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's mind-blowing. Yeah. So when, so at what point in your life did you get uh, diagnosed with this degenerative uh, thing? Uh, I... 
took a year off of college after my freshman year, mm. and uh, I was back in L. I was in L.A. Um, my mom was living in Santa Barbara at that time, and I was like interning at KCRW, taking night classes at UCLA, and then I was finally like, okay, this is something is going on here with your eyes. Yeah, so we went to the Jules Stein Eye Institute at UCLA. What was going on? Um, so I had noticed that I had night blindness a lot, which uh, means which means like. You know how you go to the movies and you find your seat and like, yeah, yeah it's pretty easy to do that. Yeah. You know, I would be, I would see the exit sign. I, w- I could see the movie fine. Yeah. But then like that, like, you mid, know, mid finding area. your way through the, the legs yeah. and the, and the, and the seated people, right. that seat empty or not was impossible. Huh. And so I would, yeah. And, and then there were, you know, my friends would go out into the woods at night and uh, just like easily pick their way around trees. And I yeah. was like walking into trees and, but it was really ambiguous. And I remember my mom even said to me like, it's dark at night, right? Like, right. it's hard to see. And, and I had this feeling like I wasn't looking hard enough. Like, right. Because it's, it's just a weird thing. Like, nobody talks about night blindness. Isn't that weird, though? It, it's interesting the way that people in, initially respond to issues. Hmm. Like, your mom, you know, just is like, no, I mean, you know, like, but that's what we all do. Uh, totally. I do it to my kid, too, where he's just, like, really sad. And I'm yeah. just like, I don't want him to be sad. So right. I'm going to, like, bully him out of being sad. I'm like, what is wrong with you? Don't do that to a child. But I'm just like, no, you're fine. You're fine. Let's move on. Yeah. It, the the sort of uh, denial. It, it, but, it, like, I learned very weird things about, well, like, I got an editor once, uh, Jerry Howard. Oh, wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. For the Jerusalem Syndrome, mm. right? And, and like... Uh, and I can't remember what we were talking about, but it was this very quick exchange where, you know, where I was talking, I was freaking out about something. And, and I just said, it, it'll be okay. And he goes, or not. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, that's really true. Yeah. And then when my, when my girlfriend got sick, you know, I talked to my mother and, you know, people were like, no, she'll be fine. It's like, mm. no one knows anything. Yeah. They don't know anything. Yeah. Yeah. But you've, you were freaked out enough to go to the doctor. Yeah, I, I wouldn't even say freaked out enough. I think it was more just like we need to. There needs to be an answer here that's better than like the extremely vague. Thing yeah, yeah, I've yeah. Got. Although my dad, being a techie, bought, had bought me a modem. This mm. is like you know, I mean, this is back before I was diagnosed, but in those years when your stepdad, was in, no, my actual mm. dad, uh, he was in California. We were in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I had this modem. I would like post to snowboard snowboarding message boards on yeah. AOL. But then I also like diagnosed myself and found out, because there's not a lot of reasons why you would have night blindness. And so I found some like- So you, know, you did the early thing of not doing what you're not supposed to do. But it was is, back then you were supposed to do it because, you know, yeah, the internet back was then smaller. It was special. Yes. And there wasn't a whole industry based on people self-diagnosing. Exactly. So the, the information was more uh, reliable in some way. Yeah. Although it was alarming too, because it was like, you go blind with this thing. Uh, so there was one thing that caused night blindness? I mean, maybe there's others, but, you know, if you Google night blindness teenager or whatever, like night blindness, that, yeah, there's, there's not a lot of reasons for it. And what's it called? Retinitis pigmentosa, uh-huh. or RP. Yeah. So you self-diagnosed and then you went to the doc mm-hmm. and got the real diagnosis. Yeah. And he was like, it'll be gradual through your 20s and 30s. And then when you hit middle age, it's going to go off a cliff. And there's nothing you can do about and it. And there's no treatment, but... Science is making leaps and bounds. So by the yeah. time you're in deep trouble, there'll be something. Huh. And and I've heard a version of that, you know, like every five years since I was diagnosed. And at a certain point, I'm like, you know, if, if there's a giant breakthrough around the corner. Yeah. And it's been around that corner for long enough. I, I don't give a shit. Anymore. Yeah. What it, but I know like it's it's an odd thing about the senses, I guess, because I know like with ears, they've actually done a lot of things. Yeah. There's cochlear implants. Uh, yeah. And, and there's badass hearing, hearing aids. Yeah. 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 But with eyes, I mean, I don't even know how that starts. 
there are wild devices that are just being invented that basically it's like a cochlear implant for your eyes. They uh, are? Uh, yeah, but, but, but with giant asterisk. I mean, it's not vision. It's like it's the same way that cochlear implant is not hearing. Like you're, it's a very different, uh, you can't reproduce like the kind of full spectrum that the natural senses experience. So like where they put two cameras in your head? Uh, yeah, they implant a chip in your retina, yeah. and that communicates with a camera, and then it artificially stimulates the retina. So, what do you see? You don't know. I, I, I don't. I don't know. I, it sounds like right now it's like it's not like Predator. Remember in Predator when you could like see what the Predator saw? And yeah, it was all yeah, like, right. Yeah, yeah. I kind of feel like it's like that a little bit. Like it's like you can see high contrast stuff. So people who are totally blind from RP can now see like if if like your window was over there yeah. and like that was the exit, it might help me orient towards the exit. Whereas without that, I would really just have to feel around with my cane, for example. Oh, so it doesn't shift that much. But I'm not like seeing child's faces or you right. know, reading print or anything like that. So is there a part of you that's like going to wait this out and then if they come with some, up with something that's amazing, it'll just be like, well, just do one eye. I want to try it. Uh, yeah, I'm not an early adopter of anything and no, I'm not going to yeah. be an early adopter of that. I wouldn't even get Lasix. Yeah, I, and, and also, like, the halfway thing doesn't feel good to me. Like, there's a lot of deaf people who are virulently against cochlear implants. Sure. Because uh, a lot of times they don't work well, and they kind of create more frustration than— I mean, they're, they're transformative for a lot of people. So the arc of this thing, so now you know and you're in your 20s, right? Yeah. So, like, for me, I would be uh, consumed with panic, like, every day. You don't, you're not that kind of guy, I guess. I guess not. Yeah, people people are confused about this part, and they don't believe me all the time. Like, well, come on, you're consumed with panic every day. Part of it, I think, is like being in your 20s, and that's just, that. Like, I was like consumed with putting that magazine out, you know, and didn't have a lot of time, and didn't want to spend a lot of time thinking right. about it. Um, and it felt distant, you know, like the, the, the diagnosis of, like middle age at that point in my life did not, I didn't have a good sense of like how many miles we had to go. You right, know? sure. It was just like, that is a thing that like, fatherhood or death someday but like why am i going to be thinking about fatherhood or death on tuesday march 3rd uh, thousand? right and i can pretty much see yeah i can see everything i was yeah. still driving you know and then i think at a certain point i was only driving during the day around then because yeah. it was like probably not the safest thing to do but so you're starting to adapt yeah yeah you know and like in my office i would wear headphones because it was a big open plan and it was chaotic and there was i would notice people say like oh no you got to you got to like tap him on the shoulder because like the intern would come up and just like wave at me and I would just be like staring at my screen and not see him. So like the peripheral, basically the way it works is there's the night blindness, but then the other thing that starts happening is gradual tunnel vision. And do you, do you see it like that or you just sort of just have a disconnect over here? Like do you, like, do you see like, a, like is it a black ring around your vision? No, because the brain just adapts. So right. if, like if you imagine like what you can't see, like what is, there's no black hole like behind your head where you can't see, right? right. It's just like that's not information that you have. Right. And so it kind of becomes like that. Like I can see, when I'm looking at your face, I can see basically your eyes and like yeah. a little bit of your hand that's, yeah. that's up there. Yeah. Uh, and that's it. But I'm not like... Aware of the, right, the, the right, edge. Right, right, right. Yeah, it, it's not like a camera where it's like an iris. Right. Yeah, things slowly go, pin, they just go away. I mean, if we could see the time lapse of my vision, it would. Yeah. But but the brain just doesn't. Brain's kind of amazing, right? Yeah, very amazing. So so how, how do you start to, uh, like, like, what is the arc of it? When do you start to be compromised to a point where you need help? Um. It's a it's a fat blurry line because you know okay so I don't drive at night but that doesn't that does not a sure compromise. you're just like an old person right then I don't drive during the day I mean that's that's the first major milestone right, right and especially because that happened right when my wife and I moved to Missouri 
where I left behind the Muni of San Francisco and the BART system and all that. And I'm suddenly like in this small college town where it snows and I'm just like sitting in this house, you know, kind of being like, oh, 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 is she, is she leaving the house? I'm going to get a ride downtown so I can go get a cup of coffee. Oh, wow. And now does, are you panicking then? That's when I started to, again, I don't know if there's panic there. I mean, yeah. the, the way I experience panic, Mark, is like there are moments when yeah. I get freaked out. Yeah. Um, but there's not, I, I feel like you are imagining like a low level terror through my days. And it's much more like it, just something will come up and confront me and I'll feel very bad and then I'll move on. Well, that's, I think that's healthy. But also like this is not, I, you know, I, but I panic about nothing. You know, and and the truth, that's just my nature, uh, uh, profound anxiety. And but also it's not cancer. Right. And I imagine that not unlike your brain adapting innately to the compromise in your vision, that some part of you is putting this into perspective. It's not cancer is an important observation, I think. It doesn't hurt, right? Like, yeah. I'm not, I'm just sitting there. And also, like, I've got this cool wife. We've got a dog. I've got work that's interesting. Like, my life is good. So, yeah, there's this, like, giant, weird, terrifying cloud that is a Descending permanent slowly. fixture of the horizon. But, yeah. like, again, like, I'm sitting here, like, what is there to do about it right now? But are you starting to think in terms <clears throat> of being blind? Yeah, yeah. I, the real turning point, so like the not stopping driving was like, I would say milestone one. Yeah. And then the, the even more important milestone was like, I had started to have more mishaps, like, like I hip checked a toddler and just like send him hard to the ground. Like uh -huh. he wasn't injured, but it felt really bad. And the parent was like really pissed. Yeah. You know, or like kicking people's dogs out. And you don't know it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and their assumption is like, what's wrong with this guy? They're just like, is he on drugs? Like, <laughs> what is his problem? And it <laughs> felt bad. Yeah. And um, so I was like, okay, I need a white cane. And as soon as if you kick a toddler with a white cane, they're like, it's, you know, they honey, thank you. Like, oh, stop. bless you. Yeah. Uh, yes. yeah. I have stop. a wonderful day, sir. Yeah. Stop crying. Yeah. I'm so hey, sorry that my toddler was in your way. <laughs> it's their fault. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but as soon as that cane comes out, I don't care how much vision you have, like yeah. you are marked and, and the whole world treats you differently. And you did that in Missouri? Yep. Although I didn't really use it full time. Like I owned it. That's where I bought it in Missouri, but I would keep it folded up in my bag and really only take it out if I was in like a kids, dark when there were bar, kids around. <laughs> if I sensed toddlers in the region. Uh, but then when we moved to Massachusetts, which was about like seven or eight years ago now, yeah. seven years ago, then I was like, okay, I don't know anybody. I'm going to be a, a cane user. Mm. Because that was the problem was like, like bringing it out of Missouri, there were people who didn't know I had an eye condition. And so it felt stressful to be like, you know, oh, did Andrew suddenly go blind? So in Massachusetts, it was like, I'm just an out-of-the-closet guy with a cane, and that's going to be... And it was a great decision. But there was so much fraudulence, because I was like, I could see stuff, but there I was, like, tapping around. So you felt like a fraud? So much, and I still to this day feel like one. Really? Oh, yeah. It's a huge part of this experience for me. Huh. Now, but how are you adjusting, and I know you cover this in the book, I mean, how are you adjusting emotionally, like, with your wife? I mean, it, because I, I, I would have to assume that there was some fairly, you know, deep conversations about the future. There should have been. <laughs> and eventually, like, writing the book forced them in some ways. Yeah. Uh, but there weren't. Like, like, there's a scene in the book where Lily and I were in New York visiting friends and her family, and we went out to a restaurant yeah. in Brooklyn, and it's, like, very dark, as restaurants in Brooklyn are. Sure. And I had the cane folded up in my pocket. This was before we moved to Massachusetts. It, it folded up in my bag, and I was like... F finding a bathroom is like up there with like you know going to get more popcorn or yeah. go to the bathroom at the movies like yeah. uh, just it's terrible so I was like okay I'm gonna use the cane <laughs> yeah 
And I'd never talked to her about the cane. I'd never talked to her about cane anxiety. And so I just like produce it. I unfold it. She had not seen it? She she knew that I had it, but she'd never right. seen me use it. Oh, wow. And it's an intense thing. Like she, and it was like, you know, it zapped her a little so, bit. So you're, uh, it's sort of like uh, you're you're introducing something to her and simultaneously to her family and yeah. to the entire restaurant. Right. So now, you know, from her point of view, you know, it, it all converges on this thing that comes out. And uh, that, so what did she feel? She was like, she kind of said to me, like, you don't need that here. Like, you know, like, why are you using that? Put that away. Yeah. And, and um, that was, but that was, you, you decided to come out. Yeah, and it wasn't like today's the day. It was really yeah. just like, I don't know, I guess now. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that was rough. That was a rough moment. And it set me back, you know, but but then... Set you back how? It set me back because I was like, oh, yeah, this is, like, she, it does make me look vulnerable. And, like, Lily doesn't like it. And, like, she doesn't like it for a good reason, probably. And, like, oh, all the shame that I felt shame. about it was, like, validated. And it's a shameful thing, you know. Th- and this is, by the way, like... At that point, it at was that a point, shameful Yeah, thing. I mean... Yeah, today I I rock it and I'm much more confident with it. But but like talk to any person who's gone blind and I don't care if they've gone totally blind or if they're in my position, yeah. like the cane is rough. It is a tough thing to accept. Yeah. Um because it just just like I said like it changes the world instantly. Yeah. The way they see you. And did did you have to get cane cane training? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I for a long time I was just figuring it out. Uh, on my own. And then when I, I started to get training, they were like, oh, no, no, no. Because I would just sort of carry it like ceremonially, you know, like this is this like toddler, you know, like kryptonite. Yeah. Uh, but then they were like, no, 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 there's there's a way to use it. But I wanted to add just about Lily, like yeah. to be fair, like when she read the first draft of the book and like that scene where I was very much like, and then my wife, who is totally, uh, you know, like unsympathetic. Can totally see. Yeah. Cited. Uh, <laughs> yeah. She told me to put it away. Yeah, and then we talked and it was like, oh no, like I, I, that was unfair to her. Like I, I just, just springing it on her like that. And so those conversations that you would imagine we would have already had yeah. only happened. But then, but now, yeah. So anyway, just so, wanted, but yeah. what was that though? Like, you, you know, after that, like, you, you know, you get back to the hotel or wherever you're staying. Yeah. And what was that? What was that conversation? It took me a minute to like simmer down, you know, but I think I said to her. In like, terms of how she reacted? Yeah. Cause I think, you know. She was like, you look so vulnerable. And I was like, in in Greenpoint, like, you know, like fancy restaurant? Vul- yeah. Like, who gives a shit? Like, I'm going to get mugged in the restaurant? You know, and her point was more just like, it, she she wasn't emotionally prepared for it. Sure. And, and she had an emotional reaction. So it took me a while to realize that, like, you know, I think there's a way in which this experience is very, like egotistical or like 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 it, it like feeds my ego a little bit right even though it's like a sad thing and yeah there's all that it's also like you know like this is happening to me and so i'm the only person who has skin in this game right and so you should just everybody should adapt around me and you know the thing i realized with lily was like i have to make room for her emotional response to it too and like the practical changes that she has to do and that is something that has taken a long time but that is extremely important to our okay. marriage Right, but I, I mean, I have to assume that, you know, even back when you first started, when you were getting diagnosed and stuff, and like, when I don't remember w- what the timeline is, were you together when you got diagnosed? No, I was yeah. I was in college, yeah, I was, yeah. So, so she knew going in, but I think there, again, there's that sort of functioning sense of, of, of denial that kind of puts off the inevitable, and then when it happens, it's, it's still jarring, even if you know it's coming. Totally, yeah. For both of us. Yeah. And so when you've talked to other people who have lost their sight, yeah. have their experiences been similar? 
Yeah. That's been the amazing thing about publishing this book. It's yeah. just like every day I'm getting three emails from people. And it's awesome because they're like people who are born blind, people who have more vision than I do. But there's like, I, it may, it's just very validating that like I captured something about this experience that speaks to other people with disabilities. Which is essentially, you, you know, other people's feelings that you may not consider, your own denial, their denial. And then, you know, the reality of of actually being that vulnerable in some respect. All of that. But then also like the... The not the, the the way that the vulnerability is actually overblown in a lot of ways, uh-huh. and the way that like you'll walk into a coffee shop and people will be like, "Oh, let me let me protect sure. you from the coffee, right?" Yeah, you know, yeah, it's like, yeah. "No, no, like I'm good. I'll I'll buy the coffee." So like it, it can swing way too far in the other direction too. And and so those first conversations with your wife, then what 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 was the arc of time? I seem to be using the word arc a lot. Because there's really an arc here. You know, yeah, it's not yeah. just a life story with, you know, you made a movie. It's like <laughs> you, you went blind. Right. Did I, though? I'm, I mean, because I can see, you know, a lot of stuff over here. Yeah, I know. But, I mean, well, well, that's relative. Yeah, it's yeah. sort of like my, my dad not wanting to use his cane even though he can't walk anymore. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> you Thank know you. what I mean? Yeah. Or, like, he refuses to get a walker, so he'll he'll hobble on a cane. I mean, I just, I made the joke, though, because, like, blindness, people only think of it as a binary, you know? And it's like, you went blind. Oh, okay, so somebody pulled a little cord and the lights went out. But, like, it's like your dad with the cane. Like, there is such a spectrum. Right. And and that's been such a mindfuck to, like, try to understand what blindness is and how much of it I get to lay claim to while I can still see six degrees of my visual field. And that's something that you are conceiving only in relation to people's judgment of you. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, disability and blindness is so social is like a weird revelation that I had. Like, because if you're by yourself, you're just the dude doing the thing. Right. Right. Maybe you have to put some tape on a thing so you can see it or, you know, put a bump dot so you can feel it. But like, that's not disability. That's just like you're making your house better. But as soon as you're out in the world, people are people are having judgments about you, yeah. expectations of what you're capable of doing. So yeah, it's like a pure, it's a intensely social experience. Because my experience with you, even in that brief passing moment, and, and I don't know you and I haven't known you for a long time. And that like, after you and I had the exchange and you acknowledged who I was, and then, you know, after you gave me the book and I, and I, and I browsed through it and I, and I learned a little more, well, it, but even before that, I said, of course, like, cause you were looking right at me yeah. and you're looking right at me now. Yeah. And then I was sort of like, well, he used to be able to see. Uh, so he knows generally where it's coming from. So I, it, I mm. even though you can see shapes or whatever, yeah, yeah, and, I, yeah. and you do know, you know, you can, you can kind of center forms <laughs> that are moving. <laughs> yes. Yes. But also you had, a, you know, a full life of sight. Right. So once the, the, uh, the brain adapts to the compromise in your senses and starts to make adjustments. Yeah. You know, that stuff that it's already wired in, yeah. you know, based on sound, you're going to sort of have a sense of it. Cause it seems to me that people who are blind for a lifetime, they're always kind of looking off. Mm. I don't know if that'll continue if you continue to lose mm. your sight, but yeah. you know, you were locked in. I, I've hung out with a lot of blind people. Yeah. And I, by the way, I still have some acuity too. So I could even see like, that's a gimme shelter poster over there. Oh like, yeah. Oh, so you're not even blind. I'm not even blind. That's what I'm trying to tell you. This is like a, <laughs> A giant this, ruse this that I'm pulling was, over yeah, America. It was just a, you saw a window and you, you're like, <laughs> this is my time. I'm going to write a book. Remember the dad and the cane. That's what it's about. Uh, <laughs> but like I have hung out with totally blind people who have yeah. been blind for a long time. And they do, you know, lock into your eyes sometimes. And it, and it can be disarming because you're like, oh, can you see me? But, you know, there's like this whole world of like Stevie Wonder truthers, who yeah. people who think that Stevie Wonder's faking his blindness yeah. for similar reasons where like he'll like 
you know, catch a falling mic stand and be like, how could a blind guy do that? And it's yeah. just like making eye contact, catching mic stands, like buying televisions, all these things that people like think blind yeah. people can't do, but they do. And yeah, yeah it's normal. So there, oh, so the, that the, the public misconception is you're only blind if you can't see anything. Exactly. And, and not, not only that, but that you're like have to mostly be led places and right. helpless. But now let me ask you a question about the Give Me Shelter poster. Mm -hmm. Was it because you're familiar with that poster? You can see the lettering. I can see the lettering. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but it is interesting the way that knowledge informs vision. In other words, like, like I have a friend, well, I'll, I'll talk about myself. Like, if I know what something is or if I know where I am, it's much easier to see. And, you know, I've been sitting right, here for sure. 10 minutes. Yeah. Like, I had a moment to sort of clock that. But, like, when yeah. I'm moving around, like, there, like, weird things happen where I'll be like, oh, that's weird that that 11-year-old girl has a beard, you know? And then I'll be like... <laughs> Oh, okay. There's like a there's like a scarf situation happening or something, you know. But like so things like that happen more and more right. as I lose vision. Yeah. Uh, but if I'm like in my kitchen and I know my back is to this east wall, yeah, I'm, I'm good. I can see a lot more than yeah. if I'm moving through the world. What's with all these short bearded people in winter? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so so how does that? Well, I mean, now that you explain it, it's like you know, blindness is is relative to you know how incapacitated you are to do normal everyday things. I don't know if I'd put it that way. I mean, well, no, I, I just mean that, like, <clears throat> you know, just just because you can read that poster, mm -hmm. you know, doesn't mean like you have peripheral vision. Right. It doesn't mean that you can identify objects on a table if they're too small. Right. Right. Doesn't right. mean that you 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 can identify a person with a beard or a scarf. <laughs> right. So I mean, you know, that's legit. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it, like legal blindness, it's it's such an ar arbitrary line, right? They were right. just like, okay, let's we got to dry lawn somewhere because we can't give these benefits to everybody. Like when government assistance programs were built, so they were like, okay, it's uh, if you can't read the giant E at the top of the chart with corrective lenses, yeah, you're legally blind. Or if your visual field has shrunk to the point where, like you said, you can read the Give Me Shelter poster, but then if I'm going to try to get up and leave your studio without my cane, I'm going to like Run cause ten thousand dollars worth of damage. Nothing in here is worth that. Really? So 300 watt dollars yeah, worth yeah, of damage. Yeah, there you go. Maybe right. 300. You know, and it probably won't break it. So what is the process of sort of integrating your kid into this and, and, and then, you know, things you start doing? Because it seems that the, the thrust of this thing is that, you know, you're living a normal life. It, 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 though it is a disability, that the perception of what blindness is 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 a misconception mm -hmm. and and that you know there's an argument to be made that people with disabilities as they adapt uh, should should only be seen as as people that have to live life differently mm -hmm. i mean the, the thing about my kid is amazing because like every new milestone that i hit where i'm like okay i'm buying a cane what kind of cane like and now i use the cane how you know or like the screen reader like my phone talks to me and like that's this like occult thing my kid like the only dad he's known is a dad with a phone that talks to him who uses a cane. Yeah. And so for him, it's totally normal. And like that actually is a powerful thing for me because I kind of see that normal, that normalcy reflected back. Right. And I'm like, oh yeah, like this is just a part of our life. Right. And, uh, well, that's interesting with kids and how, because they are, you know, innately adaptive because they're growing. Yeah. So, so their perception of, you know, if they're getting what they need emotionally and, 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 and hopefully, uh, uh, physically, that, you know, they're not going to, it's like color lines. It's like anything else. If they're not taught that, you know, dad's in trouble, mm -hmm. then it's just dad, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, and he hears me making comments. Like, we're watching a TV show, and there's, like, a sad blind person, and I'm, like, yelling at the screen. And he's like, all right, I'm yelling at the screen, too. Like, this is bullshit. <laughs> yeah. So, well, that's good. So he's learning a certain amount of uh, acceptance and tolerance in a broader way. Totally. Than just uh, you running into him occasionally. Right. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's, uh knows not to take it personally when I step on his feet. <laughs> and how's your wife doing with that? Uh, you know, it's been a journey, but... Um, yeah, we we are in a very different place now than we were when I first. What were started. the fundam- What were the the sort of uh, you know obstacles other than the first initial cane thing? What continues to sort of? I mean, I think like any marriage, there's um, it's all about negotiating the sort of duties of getting through life together, yeah, right? Right. And I think like as my my the way that I inhabited space and the, like the things, figuring out what I was capable of doing or how I had to change my techniques to do that. Yeah. Like there were, there's all these, there's always these sort of like latency periods where I'm like, like for example, she would just be like, I thought you were going to clean the kitchen and like half of that counter is like fucking disgusting. Uh. And I would be like, really? I like wiped down the counter and I'd be like, oh, huh. Uh, and, but then there's that moment where I would get really hurt because I'd be like, don't you remember I'm going blind, you know? <laughs> and, but then at a certain point I have to be like, it's still not fair to like say I'm going to clean the kitchen and then do a terrible job of it just because I can't see like the all, kitchen. I can only see like a <laughs> yeah. eighth of the counter at any right. given moment. So like, but you know, lo and behold, blind people have figured out like if you like split the counter into quadrants and make sure you just like wipe down quadrant one, two, three, four, like you can do a pretty good job wiping down. That's the counter. part of the adapting. Yeah, and yeah. so like so so there's the but there's always that kind of like push and pull where it's like there's a moment where I'm like. I don't realize it. She doesn't realize it. There's conflict, and then we catch up. But see, but but that is like sort of the fundamental issue, and I think it's something you you deal with in the book in terms of, uh, you know, you locking into self pity or victimhood, yeah, versus you know uh, adapting and and functioning in life, overriding the self pity or or the need for special treatment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's easier said than done. You know, it's very. There's uh, a friend of mine, Will Butler who lives in LA, who's a blind guy. He's kind of like one of my blind mentors. Yeah. Uh, he, he talked about this phenomenon, like the only blind guy in the room, which is like blind people. There's like a phenomenon. I think his, his, uh, another blind person, Georgina Klee came up with it, but basically it's like, you kind of feel good being all the attention that, that blindness brings to you. Right. Yeah. And like you go into the coffee shop and sometimes it's shitty, but sometimes it's like, ah, sir, let me give you like our finest vanilla roast because you are like a yeah. weird, you know, yeah. and, and some blind people I think really get into that. And so, yeah. and, I, and in a marriage, I think you can see it happen. Not, hopefully in mine, but like, you know, the, the, the partner becomes a sort of butler where it's like, oh, well, he's blind, so I just make him his coffee every day and I right. do all the dishes and I do everything. And that just seems like that would not work in my home. Uh, and I don't want it to work in my home. Sure. So I do have to like fight against that inertia, but I can feel, I can feel it in myself. I'm like, we're sitting at this taqueria. I have no idea where the trash can is. Yeah. We've got this like full table of stuff. We got to take the trash can. Like, I'm just going to let her do it. And then I have to rage against it and say, no, I will bumble around the taqueria and put that shit away because I don't want to be that only blind guy. And, but, but are there, are there moments where you, you go rage against it and you go, no. And then midway through your wife's like, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. Yep. I would say like several times a week, yes. <laughs> but I still rage. I'm still making progress. Yeah, thanks for the effort. You know, I just, I, you know, it's just that I can't imagine the sort of watching and then just deciding, sort of like, okay. Yeah. I mean, the mowing the lawn is a thing where she oh, like, come on. She's like, you can I'm get really a guy good. to mow your fucking lawn. I don't know. I guess we should. But yeah, she's she's like, I like the mowing. Mow, I like mowing the lawn. Yeah. I'm like, really? I, I should probably be doing this. But I mean, the, I, I have a whole chapter in there called the male gaze that's like about 
my masculinity and, and like the, sort of the relationship between masculinity and disability because yeah. it is like emasculating a little bit. So what are the experiences with that? Um, I mean, it's like, you know, like we go to the we go to the dark restaurant and like I want to have my hand on her back guiding her through. But I like will put my hand on her shoulder and she'll guide me. through. Right. You know, or right. like driving is a huge one. Yeah. Like I had no idea that driving and my gender were so intimately linked. But like oh, I yeah. grew up in, you know, I, I, I love driving and sure. just, just like there's something that's like a loss that I feel a lot. It's like, I would just love to drive them around a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And well, there's that whole thing about, you know, the, the dad who doesn't want to, he knows where he's going. doesn't need a map. Yeah. That's a, a that would be that form of ridiculous masculinity. Right. I know where I'm going. Right. I'm driving the car. But instead I am the map. I, I control that Google maps app with, you know, precision. I yeah. curate excellent playlists. I, I try yeah. to hold up my end of the bargain in the passenger seat. Well, what has been the adapting process of you know writing and doing that kind of stuff do you are there different i imagine that all that stuff has been made uh visually impaired as sort of uh tools that you can use right there are tools but it's funny like you know having grown up my whole life being able to access the mainstream tech and like having the money to like buy a macbook pro yeah, sure. you know every couple of years whatever yeah the world of assistive tech it's just like like second class to the max it's like you, you basically you can only huh. buy things at like the weird secondhand not secondhand but like oh, you know yeah. like the knockoff of the knockoff right, right and like nothing works quite right and like right. the it, you know hell it, 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 you can do some basic stuff but like it's just not the same experience well, that's interesting so so that world of ass assistant tech assistive that's assistive one of the, tech yeah is still sort of like soviet in a way or 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 kind of like because there's not a huge market exactly so it's relative to to uh you know what they can make exactly but it's interesting because like apple for instance like your iPhone, I'm assuming you have an iPhone. Yeah. Your iPhone, I could in in five seconds get it talking. Like if you like, sure. you know, heaven forbid, went blind right now, you yeah. would need to buy a new phone. Like right. That thing has built-in screen readers. Yeah. Um. So there is like a kind of interesting mainstream effect right. there, but yeah. like it's that that screen reader like will not work on a lot of the websites that you use. It it takes a lot of getting used to. Now it's is that glitchy. a frustration you have? Is that something you rally against? I have, there is like a dawning politicization that's happening at this moment with me and particularly with the tech stuff, which is yeah. like what a lot of blind people are all about. Cause it's like, you know, the problem of blindness is access to information fundamentally. Yeah. And so IT is like an important part of it. Yeah. But yeah, I do get pissed off because, you know, it's like I'm a second class citizen all of a sudden and like, I don't have a right to like, you know, use, use the website to buy the right. pajama bottoms that everybody else is buying? Like, why right. not? Why can't I do that independently? And, and you would think that given the number, I would imagine, of visually impaired people, that would be, all you need is one blind guy in the in the main office. Right. And the head office to go like, hey, we're, we're leaving money on the table here. But the head office is not going to hire that guy because they look at him and they're like, I don't even know how he's going to make a PB&J, let alone like swipe into the office, get to the office, and, like, use a computer to do the job. So you've become active in this community in that way? Yeah, I mean, I wrote about him a lot. Like, I still think of myself, I keep myself a little as removed by being a journalist. I'm, like, not quite ready to be, like, capital A activist. Right. But I'm getting there. Yeah. Well, it's got to be frustrating at some point. I mean, yeah. and, and, and it seems to me that, you know, if there is a silver lining, it's that it's given you uh, a very specific voice. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you were task asking me about being a writer and like before, what was I writing about? Right. I'm like, I ate a burrito and then wrote a thousand emails at the believer, <laughs> a poem by Andrew Leland, you know, like that. Nobody gives a shit. Uh, it's pretty good. Yeah. You know, you know, or maybe a dozen people give a shit. Sure. But like this experience, you know, like 
uh, people are interested in it. And but not just yeah. interested, it, it raises awareness. And there there are people in the position you're in that don't have a voice. Yes. Right. And there are people diligently working to advance, you know, technology and socialization of visually impaired people and make life at least, you know, as normal as can be for those people that are unsung heroes in this community. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I like writing the book. I didn't think about that in those terms. Like, because I, I think as a reader, I just hate it when people are like, and this book is important because it's going to make you care about shit you don't care about. You know, I'm like, <laughs> but I don't care about that shit. So leave me alone. Yeah. So like, I felt like I really wanted to approach it just as like my interest as like the guy who ate the burrito and yeah. was writing the emails. Like, what am I interested in from that perspective? Like the old me as a way to pull everybody else in and be like, actually, there's wild shit going on in the world of blindness that you should care about. And then as a net effect, people end up with a like call mark, like, and you should care and make your website accessible. But I feel like if I started from that like politicized place, nobody would care. Well, I, well, it, it wouldn't be honest to your story either. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, it's, it's something that's going to unfold with, as I imagine writing this book that, you know, you and you were sort of just to do basic research in terms of, uh, certain parts of the book, you had to really engage with the community. Totally, yeah. And, and like, who who would you reach out to? Like, how how did you go about that part of uh, putting this together? Yeah, I mean, there's it's interesting because I think people do tend to think about like the African American community, right, or like yeah. the deaf community. Sure. And there is like a building somewhere where the like the leaders all gather. Yeah, and it's obviously not like that yeah. uh, with blindness either. And there is a group called the National Federation of the Blind who I ended up writing a lot about because they're they're like the self-described militant blind people. Yeah. And it's just fascinating. Um, How so? Um, well, they argue that blindness is an incidental neutral characteristic and that like the only thing, like blindness is an inconvenience, but like it's like hair color. Like, yeah, you got brown hair. Yeah, I'm blind. Well, that's, well, that's uh, that seems to be a a, a the, there's a spectrum of that through all disabilities. It seems mm -hmm. in terms of the ones where people can function. Mm. That that point of view uh, is, is important. That you know it, that that it is incidental. We're still functioning people. Yeah, uh, we just need access to to society. Yes, the problem is not in me and in my body. Right. It's in you and failing to make a website that I can use. But, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's a really powerful idea, but. There's just some like interesting, sticky parts of it when you get into the details. Like, so for example, when you know how on street corners you can push a button and then it'll chirp to let you know yeah, when it's yeah, safe to cross. Yeah. When those were first invented, the NFB said, hell no, these make it seem like blind people are helpless. You think I can't hear when there's an idling truck at the corner? Like this, no wonder blind, there's a 70% unemployment rate for blind people. Yeah, yeah. And then there was like another group of blind people who hate the NFB and they were like, we need these. You guys are assholes. Yeah. And so like all these like crazy battles, like accessible currency, the NFB, same thing. We don't want paper of different sizes for the dollar bill. Like, yeah. no, we can figure it out. Right. Yeah. We're willing to get hit by cars and, and <laughs> be taken advantage of financially to, to maintain our integrity as humans. I mean, you know, that would be what the anti-NFB folks would argue. So- yeah, I I I, I kind of started finding out all these different factions, huh. and there's like, there's like this. Also, there's this very contemporary movement called the Disability Justice Movement that hates the old school civil rights movement because they're like all they care about is blindness, uh, you know, and it's run by white 
cisgendered, heterosexual blind guys? Yeah. Like, what about people with multiple disabilities who are right. like, you know, queer women of color? Yeah. You know, and this sort of like bringing intersectionality into it. And so I was like interested in those battles. And like, there's just like all these different divisions and it fractures. And so. That's right. It's just like, uh, just like uh, leftist politics in general. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. Well, and also like, you know, I think I had an assumption that like, okay, so this is a marginalized minority community. It is going to be a largely left wing group. And yeah. it's absolutely not. Like, right. The NFB is in particular is full of Republicans. And there's a, you know, I met a woman at the, at a Braille book fair at a yeah. blindness convention. And she was like, you know, I heard uh, the NFB was a radical organization, but then I looked up radical in dictionary. It just meant at the root of things, but like, she's a lifelong Republican. But right. like, there's a lot of blind people who are like Republican in their politics. But sure. then when it comes to blindness, they're like anarchists. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is, which is fascinating. <laughs> yeah. So what, what, uh, who have, who, what are some of the other kind of organizations that you've had to deal with? Like, I mean, or how, what, how, what else is uh, interesting about in, entering this community in general? Yeah. Well, so like in Massachusetts, when yeah. my doctor was like, okay, you are officially legally blind. Yeah. I got now, access. Is that, a, is that a, a night for a big dinner or? I was psyched. Yeah. <laughs> because you talk about imposter syndrome. If yeah. somebody's like, I'm feeling like a fraud carrying this cane around and finally like a doctor with a Harvard email address is like, you are blind. I yeah. was like, phew. Okay. I, I'm in the club. <laughs> Do you, have, you carry that in your wallet? I had the, I got a card. I could show it to oh, you. Oh, you got a card. Yeah. Because then it gets me to ride the bus for free. Oh, the okay. NFB would say, why are you riding the bus for free? Pay yeah. like everybody else. But yeah. I can if I want to. <laughs> Uh, but so like once I got access to those services, you yeah. know, then there's these like cited Massachusetts government employees who are like teaching me how to use a cane, yeah. teaching me how to use Braille. And there was that icky feeling of paternalism a little bit. Uh -huh. Like they're just like, oh, okay. So like this is, you probably don't want to do this. But, right. And so that was a big divide of, that really drew me to the NFB in particular, because I was like, where are the blind people who don't feel like this and who aren't going to talk to me like this? And I went to a training center in Colorado. Yeah. Um, that's run by the NFB. Yeah. That's run by blind people. And so, like, you're instead of like the sighted Braille teacher who I had from Massachusetts, who was yeah. like, I don't know, man, you should probably just use one finger. I don't know why. I've seen blind people use more than one finger. And then, you know, a blind person, it's like trying to ride, learn how to ride a bike from somebody who's right. like, I've watched a lot of YouTube videos about bicycles. <laughs> right. Like, that's not the guy <laughs> yeah, you yeah, want to learn right. how to ride a bike from. And so it's the same right. thing with Braille, with canes. And so, but you're out there, I'm standing on a street corner in Denver with a blind guy. I'm wearing vision occluding sleep shades because that's how the training works. Like you want to learn the blind skills. You got to be totally occluded. Right. And he's like, okay, do you think it's safe to cross? And I got to tell you, like that experience of being in Colorado with the, those blind teachers, like, yeah. nothing has made me more uh, comfortable with the level of vision I have now and where I'm heading than that, that month that I spent with those guys. I can't imagine entering that world where, you know, the idea of being having blackout uh, glasses and then you know that that moment where you realize like my other senses are going to have to step the fuck up yeah yeah i mean and that's how a lot of people with no vision live that you know because you always when i see someone with a cane who's clearly can't see at yeah. all or my assumption is yeah. that my first feeling is like the sensitivity necessary mm. to navigate yeah just by the different vibrations of what you're moving through, but also sound. Yeah, I it, it the height. I can't. Uh, it, it's it's very profound to me. It it makes me emotional. The cognitive load is intense. Like that, I've I've talked to people who have guide dogs, and like one of the things that people say about why they get a guide dog is that it like kind of relieves some of that cognitive load. Like the guide dog, to be clear, some people think they're like 
you tell them you want to go to Fifth and Main and the guide dog's like, got it, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, that's not the case. Yeah. But, you know, like if you're walking down, you know, imagine walking down a block with a cane, that cane's going to hit every single obstacle between you and the corner, right? right. Like you hit the newsstand, you hit the, the construction sure. cone. The guide dog weaves you in and all of that. And so you can sort of daydream more. And I've heard from blind people who are like, I miss being able to walk and just like space out and think yeah, about stuff. Yeah. And with a guide dog, you sort of can a little bit more. You still have to be like, okay, there's three more blocks before I got to go left. Yeah. But, but the cane, like... I, when I was doing cane training like that, yeah. I would come back. I felt like I took the LSAT, the SATs, like the P. I just like my brain oh, was yeah. zapped because you're just like, okay, oh, that's not the turn. I got to go a little more. What is this that I'm feeling? Like, oh, that's not a door. That's a wall. You know, it's just like your brain is working right, so hard. Right. Oh my god, you can't be in your head anymore in a way that's just let it go. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. I mean, you can, but you got to. Well, it's only once you find your chair at the cafe that you can start <laughs> thinking again. <laughs> Yeah. So how long have you been legally blind? Uh, a couple of years, probably like five or six years. And and have you sensed uh, cognitive shifts mm-hmm. like evolving or, or, or not quite yet because you can still see the, the moving shapes? No, definitely cognitive shifts. Yeah. Uh, you know, I use a screen reader, which is basically just my computer and my phone talk to me. Yeah. And people are always amazed at how fast that voice goes. And the thing you have to realize is that like when you're reading, like if you're just like glancing at your computer screen right now, you know, if you were going to read a poem, you might slow down. But like, yeah. if you're just like glancing through like menus, and you're going to glance. Where's my email? Yeah. You go fast, and so the voice goes fast. But like, it takes your ear some. Tra- it gives you have to train your ear to yeah. hear it that fast. So right. that, I've definitely done that, and that's yeah. like a cognitive shift for sure. Like yeah. listening to this like very Soviet sounding robot read my email at like a hundred miles an hour. Yeah, <laughs> and, and and tactilely, there's a shift too. Like I've noticed, like if I try to look for something, like if I left my my pen on this table, yeah. And I tried to look for it visually, it would just be really frustrating. I'm looking around and around yeah, and around. Yeah. Whereas if I could just like do the finger thing, yeah. I, and I'll find it much more quickly. But yeah. like I feel self conscious. It's back to the cane thing where like if you were to see me do that, I'm like patting around and you're like, oh, blind man patting on table is so sad. <laughs> but like realistically, like my life is better when I can just get <laughs> right. in there tactile. Right. And that's, that's a cognitive shift that I'm in the middle of. So it seems like a, a lot of the, th- uh, the thrust of, of, being vocal is to change sighted people's perceptions. Definitely. I, I mean, I don't know if you're this way, but like so much of the time before I used a cane, I just like wished I wore a t-shirt that said like, I have 10% of my visual field, so give me this much space. And like, there's also these other interesting things I'm thinking about. Basically, I wanted my book to just be like LED yeah. scrolling down my chest. Yeah. And so I think the impulse to write the book, you know, it wasn't from this activist thing. Like, I want people to understand the experience of blindness. Although, yeah. of course, like, I'm happy that that, that happens. Yeah. But really just like this, like, kind of self-centered feeling of like, people need to understand what it's like in here right now because it's interesting and hard and weird and yeah. funny and yeah. Sure. But we're not like tragic, pathetic people. Right, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, like, how's the Braille going? You good? It's very slow. Yeah. It's kind of like if you were to learn German or something. You yeah. Know, you could like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's not another language, but, but you know, reading with your fingers, it's a whole new ball game. But but every night, I not every night, but, like, I would say five days a week I'm doing it. I yeah. touch a little bit of Braille. And so, you know, I, like, read The New Yorker. I, I, like, to get through, like, a single talk of the town piece takes me usually, like, two nights. But... <laughs> I get there. <laughs> so that so you can listen quicker. Oh my god. But you yeah. can't but you can't. And you wrote a piece for the New York Times that, that was interesting about uh, about AI. Oh yeah. And that you know that the and it was it was it was a different way of thinking about it because there the there was this um uh you know speak it directly speaks to 
the difference between you know engaging with a person who mm. is your son, yeah, and the convenience of whatever this other thing offers you. What 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 was the event of that? Exactly? Yeah, so there's this the, you know ChatGPT. Yeah. Um, in addition to being able to talk and chat with it, there's also like machine vision. So you can like give it an image and it will be like, this is a photo of Mark Maron standing uh, with Andy Richter at yeah. Disneyland in front of the Magic Castle. And I then you could, and I didn't you know could, you could see that picture. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then, but then you could even do the chat thing and you can say like, tell me more about Marin. Mm. And I'll be like, he's wearing a Pantera shirt and ill-fitting pants. You know, like can really do the full right, thing. Right. And f- for blind people, as you can imagine, this is transformative. And so yeah. it's in beta right now, but it's rolling out. So there's this app that as a blind person, like you can hold it up to your fridge and it's like, you've got three quarters of a quart of milk and the expiration date is oh, wow. way past due. Um, And so the piece I wrote, you know, was talking about that. And, you know, I had this experience recently where we went to a Mexican restaurant for the first time since the pandemic. And I was like, oh, shit, I can't read the menu anymore because, you know, it was like up on the boards. Right, right. And and, and there was this question of like, do I like take a picture and use my phone's, you know, AI to read it, which I can do. I don't have that, like the super chat GPT thing yet, but there's still things I could do Um, or like find the menu online and then I could blow it up big enough to read or use text to speech. And I was like, I'm just, I don't feel like doing any of that. that but there seems... is actually, that's a, there is a few options. Oh, totally. I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. And I'm delighted that there's, but to be clear, right. like my piece was not like, fuck accessibility. No, no, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. But but then just the reality of my experience was, I was like, hey, Lily, what, like, remind me what the taco options are again. And then my son got all, he piped up, he's 10, and he was like, let me tell him. And it ended up being this like really lovely exchange between us that was better than anything that would have happened, I think, whether I was reading it alone with my eyes, if I were able to, or with like the chat GPT thing. And I, so the piece that I wrote was just sort of like, let's not lose sight of the the sort of interdependence that uh, is a really valuable part of the disabled experience, uh, rather than just this focus on independence, which is really important, but I think often becomes the only thing people talk about. Like I want as a blind person to be able to do everything on my own. And the experience of being human and particularly the experience of being disabled is a lot about that exchange, that social, that social experience of with being any like, kind of person. Yeah, like you know that that is the variety of human experience. Mm. So so right. So like your your kid who you said has only known you as a guy with compromised vision. Yeah, you know has has made you know his ad- adaptation and 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 it's sort of you know grown his empathy and and it sort of informs the relationship you know you have with him innately like you know he's not you know judging you like he's not like oh god i'm gonna have to read this thing for right. that yet yeah but but it is interesting to me that that independence what it says about independence and, and about having full independence means that we we'd like to have the freedom to make choices about totally keeping other people away from us <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah but i mean the independence is 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 exaggerated for everybody, right? Like, and this was something I had thought about writing the book. Like, okay, I need a cane and a screen reader to to get through my day, but you need glasses and shoes and a car and high speed internet. And like, if I took those things away from you, you'd be you'd be disabled too, right? Everyone be disabled very quickly. Yeah, if a, a few things shut down. Yeah, yeah. And, and like the the writer Sarah Hendren has a great article in Wired a long time ago called like All Technology is Assistive Technology, and it's the same idea. Interesting. Um, and so I think that. Those sorts of moves where I'm like, I'm having this very specific, very sad, very like, you know, intense experience. And then I think if you take a step back and you're like, actually, like, this is all unfiled under the same category of like shit everybody deals with in a way. It it makes it easier in some ways and also more powerful to just feel connected again. Yeah. And like what. So what is the prognosis? Are you going to go to black? I mean, I've talked to a 
lot of people with RP, and there's a range. So there's a chance that, like, I'm going to be an 80-year-old dude, and I've got, like, four photons left. And, like, you know, I could, like, smash my face up against your Give Me Shelter poster and be like, I see a giant G, I see a giant I, and do that. Yeah. Uh, Or I I know people who are totally black, you know, they see nothing also. Um, The interesting thing, getting back to your dad and the cane, is, like, at a certain point, what's the point of, yeah. like, smashing my face up against your poster? Sure. You know, like, that's yeah, not yeah. doing me any favors. It's pride. Uh, or, I, no, it's not pride. It's more just, like, it's, it's like, efficiency. It's, like, and what am I getting out of smashing my face up against that poster in the end? Like, if you, if you were to just say, like, if I said, hey, I'm interested. I've but, never I been mean, in Mark's pro- garage. Like, tell me, describe it for me. And you're, like, I got the Gimme Shelter poster. Yeah, yeah. That's way socially and just personally a better experience than me, like, smushing my face against your poster. Well, yeah, I think it's, it's it, the pride point would be not surrendering. Oh. The, well, wait, how would I be surrendering? No, no, I mean, it's like you have these other options, but and you're choosing to smash your face up against. Why would you be choosing to do that? The choice to smash my face is a bad option, I think. A because bad it's, option, It's clinging to sight, and I don't want to cling. I mean. Yeah. Isn't that pride? The, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know if it's pride. I mean, I think it's fear. You know, and I think I got to be careful because there's a lot of blind people who are very much in that clinging place. Yeah. And I... I have been there, and I still there's still parts of me that are clinging yeah, a lot. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, I guess that that's different. Is your it, it is that uh, an aggressive? It's not quite denial, but it's a desire to still have that thing. It is denial. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, and it's still there, but 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 it, it, but it like is it really helping you out? Like, what is the point? At what of point do you just it? sort of like, all right, yeah, give me the walker. Exactly. Right, right. And like, why am I forcing myself to like walk around like this when and like- taking this time. Yeah. And then, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and that's the point. Like if I tried to do everything visually, if I was like, I'm not blind enough to use a screen reader, I can see, which is true. Like if I blow the words up really big on my screen, I don't think I would have been able to finish the book because my eyes fatigue, because I'm moving so much more slowly. Now that I can listen super fast and yeah. uh, I, like I'm efficient. And I imagine your typing's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Touch typing is an important skill for a blind guy for sure. Yeah. Well, it was great talking to you and, uh, you know, good job in, in fleshing this out. I'm so glad you chose to have a superiority burger that day and that we got to, <laughs> to meet. This is amazing. Do you, th- do you feel like we did a thorough job? I think so, yeah. Good. Well, uh, good luck with everything. Thank you. I, I don't know. It's like now I'm treating like sort of like, we'll see what happens. We won't. <laughs> uh, I'll accept it, yeah. All right, man. Good talking. Likewise. Well, that was a great human conversation. Uh, again, Andrew's book, The Country of the Blind, A Memoir at the End of Sight, is available now. Hang out for a minute, people. Hey, folks, this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. You know all those times you've heard guests sneeze on the show. Well, actually, you don't hear any of that because we cut the sneezes out when we're editing. But take my word for it, people definitely sneeze in here, and when they 
they do, I've got a box of Kleenex on the table right in front of them so they can use one and get right back to business. And here's what Kleenex means to me, a tissue that will hold up. We've all used those other tissues that you blow holes right through. When I see Kleenex, I know that tissue is up for the job. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. This week's bonus episode on The Full Marin is a talk about an underappreciated movie, Changing Lanes. So he's driving to the courthouse, and he gets into this fender bender with this guy who's also on the way to the courthouse. This is Ben Affleck's character, but he's delivering the paperwork that is going to uh, move, what is it, the charitable trust of, yes, a, of, of a, their client, of a multimillionaire, of their client into the control of the partners of the law firm. And what you learned right. very quickly is that Ben Affleck had a relationship with this guy's granddaughter, the billionaire. As a, fr- a friend, lifelong college, friend, not, right? like, not a romantic relationship. Like this is a kid he used to play with as a child. Right. So, and he's trying to become part, he's married into this law firm. He's married to the daughter of one of the partners, Amanda Pete. Cindy Pollack is her dad. Cindy Pollack playing a morally compromised lawyer is probably the best Cindy Pollack. Um <laughs> It's like this could be the same guy from Michael Clayton. It, it just oh man, it, this movie has so many tells for you. Like like yeah. <laughs> you know, if you like see a person and you're like, oh, that's my friend's type. Yeah, like yeah. if this movie, like if you just saw any five minutes of this movie, you'd be like, oh, that's Mark's type. Yeah. This movie, this movie it's in New it. York. It's, it's morally comp- compromised people. Right. <laughs> it's Sidney Pollack playing right. a a shitty boss. <laughs> We've got new bonus episodes twice a week on The Full Marin, so sign up by clicking the link in the episode description right now or go to WTFPod.com and click on WTF+. Plus. Maria Bamford is back on Monday's show, so, whew, yeah, get ready for that. I, I, this is, I didn't use the metronome. I, di- I didn't use it this time. I, okay. <laughs>
lives. Monkey in La Fonda. Cat angels everywhere. I just chased that riff. I don't... I, I can't answer for it. There was no metronome. No nothing. It was just sloppy old shit. It came together, though. <laughs> 